Amen. How are you doing this morning? You doing good? Come on, you can do better than that. How are you doing this morning? Woo! Yeah. Well, good morning. It's uh, good morning. We're here in, uh, we're in week three of our uh, Can of Worms sermon series. And uh, we've been addressing issues that I think often create more questions than we really have answers for. Um, I was thinking how funny it is that all of the tough questions of our lives seem like a can of worms. But you know, from God's perspective, He has all the answers worked out very clearly, doesn't it? It's not a can of worms from His, from his viewpoint. But for us, we run into very tough questions in our lives. And speaking to some of those tough questions, we've run headlong into some of those questions as we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus lays out God's standard for his kingdom. And he clearly shows how that we all really fall short of God's holiness. Now, he was teaching kind of directly to a Jewish audience. And more specifically, I think his comments were directed specifically at the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember those guys, the scribes and the Pharisees were those leaders of Israel who took the law that God had given and they had created their own quasi-biblical worship system based on self-effort and based on dead works. And so they believed that they were truly justified because they were able to hold to the standards that they themselves had created. I mean, it's a pretty easy system, right? I create my own rules on how I get to God, and then I'm doing pretty well by keeping my own rules. They took the law God had given to Moses and added a whole collection of other rules and regulations to it. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is confronting them and destroying that logic, and he points out the many differences between true salvation and human effort, between the law and holiness and truth of God and the wisdom of men. Now what they were doing, I think, and what Jesus was saying was applying to them, but I also believe it applies to us today. Because I think if we analyze some of the, some of the religion that we practice, some of the things we believe, we'll find that at times we believe and behave just like these Pharisees did. They believe their rule-keeping would help them attain a, a level of holiness that I think God himself would be honored to keep. Sometimes it's easy for us to have those same mindsets, a similar thought. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly shows what wretched sinners we truly are. You know, Pastor Steve addressed this really well a few weeks ago in his sermon, Rock Solid. If you haven't heard the sermon, I think it was Easter Sunday, he did Rock Solid. If you haven't heard that sermon, get online and listen to that sermon because he compares the performance plan versus the grace plan. These scribes and Pharisees, they were working the performance plan. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a section in chapter 5 from verses 21 to 48 that Jesus has these little paragraphs of subjects that he's showing the difference between God's plan and the Pharisee religion plan. And in each of those subjects, he begins by saying, you've heard it said, 
which is the Pharisees' plan. And then he says, but I say to you, which is God's plan, the grace plan. He says, your standard is here, but God's standard is way up here. He says, you think it's enough not to kill. Well, God says, you shouldn't even get angry. You think it's enough not to commit adultery. God says, you shouldn't even think it in your heart. You think it's appropriate and enough to just do the paperwork to get a divorce. God says you shouldn't even get a divorce except under the conditions of sexual infidelity. You think it's enough to put an oath behind everything you say. God says you should be speaking truth such that you don't even need an oath. Your standard is here. God's standard is here. And so as we're continuing through the Sermon on the Mount, we come this morning to a passage that I think is very misunderstood and causes lots of confusion and really opens a can of worms. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. So if you have your worship folder there, pull the sermon notes out and you can follow along with me as I read. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Wow. Some tough words there. When you read this, do you do what I've done sometimes? You just find yourself kind of skipping right by it. You know what I'm saying? You kind of just read through it and keep right on going. Because this stuff just doesn't add up. I mean, I'm supposed to let people beat me up? I'm supposed to let them take all my stuff? Come on, Jesus, that's, that's, that's too tough. Well, I, it's, that's hard to accept. I, I can't believe that. I mean, talk about a can of worms. This passage has led to some real confusion. People have taken these very words and, and used this passage to teach lawlessness. It's been used to teach passivism. It's been used to teach conscientious objection to war. It's been used to teach against capital punishment, a disbelief in justice, a disbelief in civil law. It's been used in a lot of ways. But Jesus really here in this passage, his focus, his topic, the purpose of saying these words is he's directly talking about personal vengeance, harboring uh, hard, ill feelings towards someone else and trying to get even with other people. Harboring anger in our hearts. Because in his day, that was a real issue. But I think it really kind of pervades our society today, even in the church. These are good words for us to think about today. Because a fundamental part of our Great American philosophy is that we all have certain rights. I mean, our Declaration of Independence says that our Creator has endowed us with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're big on rights in America. In fact, we're often hyper-conscious of our rights. 
we've had movements for rights on practically every subject. We're conscious of our rights. We demand respect, don't we? I mean, under the thin veneer of society, there's this need for respect. Don't diss me. Don't disrespect me. I'm going to fight for respect. It's kind of what's in our hearts. Now, there's nothing really wrong with wanting rights, and especially wanting the rights protected of those who've been unfairly taken advantage of or have been unduly disrespected. I mean, God himself is a God of justice who protects the rights of those who can't protect themselves. Our God is a God of honor and a God of dignity. The problem, though, comes when our rights, our desire for rights, flows out of our sinful, vengeful heart. I mean, I'm sure you've heard it said, and maybe you've said it yourself. They can't do that to me. They're not getting away with that. Boy, if she says that again, I'm just going to tell her off. Because I have rights. You can't disrespect my rights. That's just a sinful part of our human nature. I'm not going to let anyone get over anything on me. You can't get away with that. that. That comes from the curse of sin. It's part of that vengeful, spiteful spirit that lives in all of us apart from Jesus Christ. I was thinking about how easy it is to get kind of caught up in this kind of attitude, especially in our instant communication society, right? With uh, text and internet and Twitter and Facebook. It's easy for me to, to feel um, that someone has hand, treated me unjustly or unright, and they stepped on my rights. And it's easy for me to take that and get mad about that and run to Facebook and throw it out there. And then I get all embarrassed because I realize I shouldn't have done that. I want to take that back. Wives, you ever done that when your husbands are mad at you? Husbands, you ever done that when your wives are mad at you? It's kind of embarrassing. It's easy for us to get caught up in this vengeful spirit and attitude. And so our passage today addresses directly this attitude of revenge and getting even. And Jesus is also talking to the Jewish misunderstanding of the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Give them what they're due. That's the way they applied it in Jesus' day. We all have a, a nature, that natural sense of justice created in us by God, but, but in the fall it became a, a perverted vengeful spirit, not just to make things right for God's glory, but to make things right for my benefit. Make it right for me. That's what James chapter 4 is talking about when he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not the sinful, lustful, vengeance, passion that's warring in your heart? You lust and you do not have. God says that sinful desire to get what we want and consume it on ourselves leads to the arguments and the fights and the things in our lives. So Jesus is addressing this vengeful attitude by contrasting the spirit of his kingdom, which is forgiveness, with the spirit of revenge, the sinful heart of revenge. 
And I think out of these five verses, we can draw three viewpoints. And I want to go ahead and give them all to you right now, and then we'll cover them individually. First of all, we're going to look at the principle of the law. This is the law that God gave to Israel on Mount Sinai. And then we'll see the perversion of the Jewish teaching. The leaders of Israel had taken God's law and they'd twisted it for their own interests. And then finally we'll look at the perspective of Jesus. Jesus gives a new understanding of this law. So first of all, let's, let's spend some time talking about the principle of the law. What is the law? Well, the law specifically he's addressing is the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In verse 38, Jesus says, you've heard it said, and he was referring to the oral tradition of the rabbis, which actually was a quote from Leviticus chapter 24. And so in Leviticus chapter 24, we read this law that says, if anyone injures his neighbor... As he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Well, God gave Israel the entire law, and this law specifically, but the entire law, was intended to teach them about him and to point their hearts toward him. And also, through his law, Throughout the Bible, God supports civil law and justice handed out through a civil court system because God designed human society to be lawful. God gave law to protect righteous men against evil, ungodly men. And throughout the Old Testament, God continually indicted Israel for their unjust judges and for their inequality in their legal system. And even Paul wrote in Romans 13, and he said that the people put in positions of law are agents of God. God says government authorities, whether they're good or bad, are ordained by him and for his purposes. God ordained good authorities to bless nations and bad authorities to punish nations. And even Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, he said, Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners. Now here we, we see that God supports law and order. But you know, at first glance, this, this law, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it sounds kind of bloodthirsty, doesn't it? I mean, seriously? Doesn't God sound like he's a God of revenge that he's telling us he wants us, his people, to, to live our lives getting even? I mean, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, it's easy for us to hear those words. And it's easy for us to believe it that way because that's the way our heart wants to believe it. But that's not God. That's not what he's saying here. We'll take just a minute and, and, and think about this phrase, eye for an eye. Because three times it's stated in the Old Testament. So I think we need to look at that to kind of understand what he's saying there. All three occurrences in the Old Testament relate to civil court action within a duly constituted authority and system. The law is not about personal revenge or personal relationships. God says that this law begins and ends in a duly constituted court um, action. 
And that's where the can of worms opens up. That's where our confusion begins because we try to interpret it in a personal way. First off, in Exodus 21, we'll read the first instance of this when uh, he writes, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that their children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Wow, that'll start a revival. (laughs) I guess the first lesson we learn here is, ladies, if you're pregnant, just don't hang around guys who are fighting, okay? God says if someone harms a pregnant woman and she gives birth, but ultimately she and the baby are fine, then the woman's husband can take the guy to court and the judge determines what the fine shall be. But if she or the baby lose their life, then the offender gives up his life through the legal method of capital punishment. That's what he's saying there. What he doesn't say is that the husband can get a club and go beat the guy up. This isn't a vigilante hootenanny. Okay? God is a God of purpose and he's a God of order. His design is for a society to survive. It must be built on order, not personal vengeance. And in the Old Testament, judges dealt with these kind of civil law cases. And within the framework of that law, God is protecting the weak from the strong. He's protecting the good from the evil. He says punishment should be executed swiftly and properly through civil authorities. He doesn't say gather the family up and go get them. The second mention of this phrase, eye for an eye, is in Leviticus 24, and it's much like the Exodus passage. And the third mention of eye for an eye is in Deuteronomy 19. Let's read that. He says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The judges shall inquire diligently. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, but it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Well, here God is saying, let the accused and a sufficient number of witnesses appear before a court. And let the authorized judge determine the matter and hand out swift judgment. God says, get rid of evil through swift punishment, which puts the fear of law in the evil men's hearts, and they'll do less evil. God's design is civil law, not vigilante justice. So the whole point to this eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was that it was never to be taken into the hands of individuals, it's, all, it's never to be applied in personal relationships. And also it's a restraint on the vengeance buried deep within our hearts. He says when justice functions, let it never go beyond its bounds. If only a tooth was taken, then only a tooth should be taken. Because God wanted to limit the evil in the human heart, which always wants to go beyond how it's offended. Don't we? Don't we always want to give back more than we've received? I mean, if you're a parent, you very well understand this. I was thinking about my sons when they were little. 
And I could always count on the fact that sometime through the week, somebody was going to do something to somebody over something. <laughs> there was always going to be trouble. You know, one of them might have a little G.I. Joe action figure. And his brother takes his G.I. Joe action figure away from him. Well, rather than just getting another G.I. Joe action figure or just getting that figure back, the brother who lost his toy would hit his brother or push him down or throw something at him. And then, oh my goodness, it would ramp up and you got yelling and crying and hitting and fighting and arguing. One little action figure would, would result in some kind of death cage match. We always want to go beyond how we've been offended. I don't want you hurt me. I want to hurt you more than you hurt me. God knows that about us. That's the sinful heart apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he put a limit and boundary on that in the court system that the punishment would be just and he denies personal revenge. So that's the principle of the law. But then God gave this law to Israel, and the leaders of Israel were so, as they were so apt to do, they would abuse it. They twisted it for their own uh, interpretation. So the perversion of the Jewish teaching, we could call that the stick it to your neighbor religion. They took eye for an eye out of the court system, and they brought it into their personal lives. And they lived and taught that God sanctioned vendettas, that Revenge and vengeance was the order of the day. And they said, in your personal relationships with others, you have the right to get even. If someone offends you, you have the right to offend them in the same way. In fact, you have a God requirement to offend them back. Because God says, eye for an eye. They created this social law of, of revenge. And so, I mean, it, it can be a bit confusing because, let's face it, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, I mean, that sort of sounds like getting even, doesn't it? You do this to me, I'll do that to you. The problem is the Jewish tradition took this divine principle of civil law where God intended it to be, a principle for the courts, and they made it a matter of daily personal life. Grudges, revenge, getting even, being angry, being bitter towards someone, were just a part of daily life. It was sanctioned and taught. And that's where the sinful heart wants to live. And we go right there without Jesus. That's where we want to be. The principle of the law, eye for an eye, was to be a legal civil reality. And the Jews perverted it into their everyday lives. And they lived with this constant attitude of getting even. But now, what does Jesus say? What is the perspective of Jesus? Well, Jesus says, you've heard it said. He's saying, your leaders take the law I gave Moses and they add their spin to it, but I'm telling you something different. Then what he says kind of sounds crazy to our human ears. I mean, turn the other cheek, give away all my stuff, roll over in court, let someone else set my schedule. Seriously, Jesus, where's my rights? Where are my rights? Where's the balance? I mean, what if someone commits a crime against me? Do I let them just come in and they, they come in, they steal my TV, and I say, okay, buddy, here's the keys to my car. You can take it down to the pawn shop. 
I mean, is that what I'm supposed to roll over? Is that what it's about? Is Jesus teaching uh, pacifism? He says, I tell you not to resist evil. That sounds kind of just roll over and take it. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. Because the Bible clearly says we should resist evil. James 4, 7 says resist the devil. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist the devil. We see Jesus in John chapter 2 and Mark chapter 11 taking a whip of cords and going into the temple and cleaning it out. He was resisting evil. We are to resist evil in all of its satanic forms. And then just from a human logic perspective, I believe God created us with a strong sense of self-preservation. I mean, if someone broke into my house to harm my family or to harm me or to harm my interests, my natural God-given response would be to protect myself. And believe me, I would. Proverbs 22.3 says, A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. It's obvious that God created us with a self-preservation instinct. So when Jesus says, do not resist evil, the word translated resist here means to set against. And the word translated evil means the one who has wronged you, not someone who's going to kill you. Jesus says, don't set yourself against the one who wrongs you. In other words, in your personal interaction with people, don't start a feud. Don't have a grudge match with someone who's offended you or who's hurt your feelings or with their words or their actions or they've taken advantage of you. He says vengeance and bitterness should not drive your actions. That's what he's saying. If there's a crime committed, seek the law to do its work because that preserves society and glorifies God. But in your personal interactions with people, let your heart be filled with forgiveness and love toward others. Proverbs 24 says, Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. You know, Jesus is speaking from the perspective that all those who commit evil someday will get what they deserve. God says in Deuteronomy, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. All who die in their sins will be separated from God forever. And God says it's not your job to get even. That's my job. I know how to do that. Beloved, you don't want him to get even with you. You want to live out the grace plan this morning, trust me. To illustrate the point that Jesus is making that vengeance is not his plan for us, he paints four word pictures. And these are scenarios that aren't intended to be hard and fast rules only applying to those four specific situations. But he wants us to take these lessons and apply it to all of our personal life. And his first illustration is, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And I think in this statement here, Jesus is addressing the value of dignity. He's talking about our dignity. You know, when a circumstance occurs in our lives and we might say, I'm a human being. I deserve respect. I deserve to be retreated with kindness. And while that may be true, you are a human being created in the image of God and you do deserve respect and you do deserve to be treated with kindness. Also, just as true is that 
people don't always treat you that way. In your life, people are going to treat you badly. You're going to be driving down the road and somebody's going to pull in front of you. You're going to go to a restaurant and some server is going to be rude to you. Your best friend, your wife, your husband, your kids, your mom, your dad, they're going to treat you at some time and hurt you and disrespect you in ways that you don't really appreciate. And when that happens, at that moment, you have a choice. You can strike back in some way, which is our natural response. Strike back. That's in the human heart, right? Or I can forgive. Clearly, I can speak the truth in love to them and tell them what they've done to hurt me, but I don't have to attack them. I don't have to try to get them back and make them pay. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And he's not referring to a physical attack here. He's, he's talking about treated, being, treating, being treated with disrespect. An offense to our dignity. An offense to our rights. Because in that day, you know, the Jews would say the most demeaning thing you could do to another person was to slap them with your open hand. I mean, if you were fighting somebody in a fist fight, you were treating them like an equal. But to just slap somebody in the face with an open hand was a disrespect, especially if you hit them with the back of your hand. That was very disrespectful. I mean, you know, we've, we've seen the tradition of when you're, you're trying to get some guy in a duel, you take your gloves off and slap him in the face, right? It was very disrespectful. And that was in their uh, belief. And so Jesus is saying, when your dignity is taken away, when you are dishonored, when you are insulted, when you are humiliated, let them do it again before you ever retaliate. Take the love that I've given to you and show it to others by responding differently than they would respond. Because our human reaction is to strike. Jesus says the holy reaction is to forgive. Let me ask you this morning. Who is someone that Jesus is asking you to turn the other cheek to today? When I ask you that question, did a name pop into your head? If it did, just write that down so you can remember that. Jesus' second example, he said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And here he's addressing this issue of security. He's not just talking about only in court, but he uses this example. And he says the idea here is that you're involved not in a frivolous lawsuit where someone has sued you just because they want to take your stuff. You're a Christian, they know you're going to roll over, so they're just going to sue you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that there's apparently some justification for this person's action because they're suing you specifically for your coat. And he's saying if, if, if your opponent wins the case, he's taking away something you need. You need a coat to keep warm in the winter, right? And this guy just took your coat. He just took your security. He took what is uh, going to keep you alive, what you trust in. Jesus says if someone takes you to court and you lose, don't begrudge him. Don't be angry and retaliate. Show him that you're really sorry that it ever happened. Repent and just pay that debt without bitterness. Because that's going to shock him and that's going to show him the love of Jesus Christ in your heart. And that's the love that's going to glorify your Father in heaven. 
Jesus says in these situations where your ability to maintain your security, the things we put our trust in, we're going we're gonna to come up against situations in our lives where our security are, is, is, is threatened. And my, the things I'm putting my trust in and, and the stability of my life is threatened. Jesus says, show love, not grudgingly, but willingly. Trust that he knows where you are and he is your security, not that thing you're putting your security in. Let me ask you this morning, where is Jesus asking you to give up your grip on security and just trust him today? When I ask that question, did a thought come into your mind? A situation that he's been talking to you about? If it did, just write that down. Just write that down. Jesus' third example, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Here, he's addressing this issue, the value of freedom. We have the right to personal freedom. I mean, God made us independent, didn't he? He gave each of us a brain, gave us each eyes and ears and hands and feet and a body. We can say and think and do things we want to do, go where we want to go. We have personal liberty. God has given us that. But sometimes people are going to step on your personal liberty. Now, again, we're not talking about national freedom. We're not talking about those things in our life like that. We're talking about personal freedom. There may be things that you want to do in your life, but you can't do them because someone else wants you to do something for them. You've got your schedule all laid out and someone else has put upon you something else they want you to do. Husbands, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I see you. Sorry, ladies. Personal freedom, personal liberty. Jesus gives us an example that's a bit archaic to us, but let's think about Israel was under Roman domination. And a Roman soldier could enlist a person at any time to do anything they wanted them to do. And so put yourself in the heart of a Jew, in the mind of a Jew. These guys hated the Romans. The Romans were their conquerors. They hated them. And doing something for a Jew was just disgusting. And Jesus said, basically, if a Roman soldier forces you to carry something for him one mile, don't just do what you're forced to do, but out of love that God gives you, do more, even for a Roman. I mean, the classic example is that day that Jesus was beaten so severely he couldn't carry his cross, and the Roman soldier grabbed Simon of Cyrene and made him carry Jesus' cross. He probably hadn't planned that day to do that in his schedule, but he ended up dragging Jesus' cross up that hill. Jesus says, you think your religion meets God's standard? Your, st your tradition would tell you to do just what you're asked, but my word is to go the extra mile. Glorify God by living out God's character of love in you, even when you're dealing with an enemy like a Roman, your worst enemy. Your standard is here. My standard is here. Then Jesus' final word. Give to the one who begs from you, 
And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And here Jesus is addressing the value of possessions in our lives. You know, in this material world we live in, so often it's easy for us to believe that that our value rests in the things we own. The things we've been able to collect, even the things we desire to own. And we often measure our success and our value by the amount and quality of stuff we have, don't we? It's easy for us to think about it like that way. Or, or our position, or our job, or our power, or where we live. Those things value, create value in our lives and, and give us our identity. And we're possessive about things. We're possessive about our property. Well, Jesus says, when someone asks you for something, give it to them. I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> Whoa, Jesus. You want me to give away all my stuff? Seriously? Well, no, his point here is that we're helping someone in genuine need. We're not enabling people in their circumstance. He's not talking about uh, professional beggars here. He's, he's saying don't be stingy with someone in genuine need. And I think when we think about genuine need, the important inference here is that we know what their need is. To know someone's genuine need, we have to have relationship with them. The call is to get into people's lives and community so that you can provide the right kind of help that doesn't enable their sin but helps them out of their circumstance. I mean, I can't address all of the different scenarios here this morning, but Deuteronomy 15 says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. The idea here is to be completely generous. With a poor man of your brethren who is in your gates, he's talking about someone in your circle of relationship. And that's one of the beauties of New Life Church. It's the value of being connected to a body of believers such as we are here. Because we have deep community here. And we're relating to each other, and we're in a place where we can know each other's needs, and we can help each other out of our circumstances. Jesus says, if you want to live out the grace plan and not the performance plan, show your love through your generous heart. Your first reaction might be to cling to. Jesus says, I'm telling you to let go of. Let me ask you, where is Jesus asking you to meet a need today, something you're aware of. Whatever that is, just write that down. As I begin to wrap up our time together here, I want to say some things I want you to hear. You know, Jesus says, don't have a bitter heart of revenge. Don't connect your wagon of your identity to the issue of dignity, security, personal freedom, possessions. Define yourself with a heart of love and forgiveness. Interact with others the same way your heavenly Father interacts with you. Don't have your dignity be what defines you or the things you own be the most important thing to you. But love others in the way the Father has loved you. And as I've been talking this morning, I think the question should be on your mind if you've been listening to me. If you've been thinking about dinner, you probably won't ask this question. <laughs> but if you've 
thought about what I've said, the question should be, how in the world do I do that? How, Jesus, can I possibly hold to those high standards you've laid out? I mean, Jesus is, my standard is here and Jesus' standard is here. I, I don't know how to, how to get there. And that's the bottom line. The bottom line is, through your own ability, through your own religion and effort, you can't live up to these standards. None of us can. Our religion is here. His standard is here. But that's the beauty and the power of the gospel. Only through Jesus can we live out what he calls us to do. You know this morning, if you have believed the gospel... If you have believed that Jesus is God and that his death on the cross was a substitute for your death and that through his empty tomb he secured your salvation, then he says that you are his child. You're the child of God this morning. Amen. And you know, Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to this dirty, smelly, sin-filled world. He suffered the humiliation of a clown court. He was mercilessly beaten and brutally murdered on a cross just so that we could know him and be known by him, that we could love him and he would love us. Jesus gave up all his dignity for us. He let go of all of his security for us. He was stripped of all his possessions and his liberty, freedom for us, just so that we could be his children, just so that we could be in relationship with him. And in light of that, let me ask you the question this morning. What is there to fight for? What is there that you need that Jesus Christ hasn't already given you? What is there to be vengeful and get even for and be angry toward and fight over? What is there? I mean, we look at the, our lives as the sum of what we do. Jesus looks at our lives as the sum of what's in our heart. And an eye for an eye doesn't mean that you live a life of getting even, protecting your rights, making sure in every situation you have to come out on top. We don't have to win every argument. You don't have to win every argument this morning. We don't have to be respected by everyone. Believe me, you are already respected by Jesus Christ. You've already won the argument through Jesus Christ. He says you're already more than a conqueror. Jesus says if you're worried about your dignity... If you're worried about your security, if you're worried about your liberty, if you're worried about your possessions, you just hang on. Because someday, real soon, I'm going to come and get you. And in that day, you're going to realize and experience all of everything you could have ever hoped for, anything you could have ever dreamed of. In this life, through his grace, we have the ability to live in dignity because he gives us dignity. We have the ability to live in security because he is our security. We have the ability to live with possession and freedom because he is our possession and he is our freedom. That's here. And then the day is coming when it's going to be way over the top. Amen. So what is there to struggle for? I don't know what's going on in your life this morning. I don't know 
Maybe you're in a situation where you've got somebody you're just ready to tell off. They say one more thing and you're going to give it to them. Maybe you and your husband or you and your wife are having struggles with each other. Maybe there's, you're struggling with your kids or maybe there's an issue with your boss or your neighbor or a family member. And you're going to get even. You might not say that, but down in your heart, there's that desire to just get back at them. Jesus says, let go of that. Let go of that. Just believe the gospel. Believe who I am. Believe what I've already done for you and believe who you are in me. Forgive and love as I have loved you. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. And the worship team is going to come. And when they come, the prayer partners are also going to come up front here and, and be available for prayer. And if you need to let go of any vengeful intent, any harboring, any anger or unforgiveness in your heart, or you've got any names written down on your page there of, of folks that you need to let go that anger about, come up and pray with our prayer partners. If you have any other needs of any kind, our prayer partners are here to pray with you. And then also, while they're playing, we have the Lord's table all around this room. The bread and the cup, they point us to Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for us that gives us that right to be called the sons of God. And let me invite you to come and partake as you feel led at any one of the tables around the room. And as you do, let go of those hurts and that anger and that vengeance that might be hiding down in your heart. Just turn it over to Jesus. And if you need uh, gluten-free, I think that table back there has uh, gluten-free. You can uh, take care of that. And this morning also, if you are physically unable to come forward to one of these tables for any health reason, just raise your hand. We've got a couple ushers who will have trays and they'll come to you and serve to you the bread and the cup. So just raise your hand high and they'll see that and, and serve you. This morning Jesus says, do not resist evil, but forgive and love. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you so much. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb because, Lord, it's only through that that any of us in this room right now have the ability to just be here. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy and the love that you have given to us. And we pray, Father, this morning that we would take your laws, apply them to our hearts, and live them out in love and grace and forgiveness with one another. Lord, I pray that all of those issues we have in our heart of hurt or pain or bitterness or anger toward anyone, that this morning we would just let it go. We just let it go and let your grace flow through us because, Jesus, all we need is you, and we already have that. So, Lord, we give you all the glory and the praise in your name this morning. Amen.